So we're in this uh, series, Shattered Saviors, and tonight we're going to look at toxic spirituality from three angles, the causes of it, the cycles of toxic spirituality and deliverance from it. Let me pray for us and we'll hop into this. Jesus, our need from you as we open up a passage like this, what Megan just read, as, as it sinks down into our heads in the next few minutes, we may feel trapped. I did. We may feel cornered. We pray that you would bring us, all of us, I don't know who all my friends are in the room tonight, we pray you would bring us to a place where we would cry out, who will deliver me? I can't. Would you bring us to the end of ourselves in that way? The ways that we are still trying to deliver ourselves or the ways we misunderstand your word and think that you are yelling at us to deliver ourselves. But would we see you as one not just who is able to save and deliver from the patterns that we give ourselves to, the toxic spirituality, but would we see you as willing still, even in light of who we are, how we've lived our lives? Would you do this for your sake and for ours because we need it? Would you pity us, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, in 2014, a bunch of pediatricians in Flint, Michigan, started seeing some common symptoms in a lot of their patients. And they were anomaly symptoms. They were weird symptoms that you don't normally see in a doctor's office. Things like seven-year-olds who couldn't remember information that they clearly knew and they'd forgotten it. All these people were all of a sudden reporting tingling in their fingers and their toes. They uh, normally well-behaved kids were getting in trouble at school a lot over a course of a few months. Just behavior changes that weren't characteristic for the kids, headaches, stomach aches. So they're realizing among different doctor's offices, this is a trend. A lot of pediatricians are seeing this. And so they started ordering blood work to be done on these children to figure out what's the cause of this. And when the blood work came back, child after child after child, up until like 12,000 of them, it came back and every single one of them had extremely elevated levels of lead in their blood. You don't, like old cities, they used to live in Philadelphia, lead poisoning is a big deal up there, all the old homes with paint. So they didn't know the source of the lead poisoning, so they got the parents tested too. All the parents of these children. And on and on, the entire city, every resident in Flint, Michigan, had extremely elevated levels of lead in their bloodstream. And they started investigating this, uh, and they discovered part of the cause of this was the city's just 100-year-old lead pipes underground is what was delivering the water to everybody. But those pipes had been there for hundreds of years, and it wasn't until 2014 that these problems with lead poisoning started showing up in a bunch of people's bloodstream. It was a hard problem to, to diagnose and to notice at first because the problem with poisoning like this is it happens so slowly and subtly that you never know it's happening until months and months later when really weird symptoms that seem very disconnected from the cause. Cause and effect were separated by months or years. So it's very difficult to diagnose. It was a very difficult problem to solve. It's 2020, and it was just a year ago this month that for the first time water tests in Flint, Michigan started to come back clean. Five years 
after billions and billions of dollars put into literally digging up every lead pipe in the city and replacing it. Billions of dollars more in medical expenses. Politicians voted out of office and new ones voted in. The sad thing was, though, that when you started to look into all of the reasons that this happened, you see what a problem it was decades in the making. So it was, it was governmental corruption. It was, it was misspending of funds. It was overspending in other areas. It was people taking money for themselves over the course of decades that created a budget crunch that necessitated the city officials to look for a way to save money, to cut costs, to cut corners. And the way that they cut a ton of cost out of the system is switching Flint, Michigan's water source from the clean, pristine waters of Lake Huron to the polluted Flint River. Polluted water passing through toxic pipes, ending up in the sinks and the showers and the water glasses of everyone in the city. And children are especially susceptible to that. And lead, when it comes into your body, doesn't leave your body. It accumulates in your body and it slowly poisons you more and more and more and more. And the symptoms get more and more aggressive and more and more severe over time. There are toxins in the physical realm. This story and many others around the world prove it. And they're dangerous because they're subtle. It's not like the James Bond movies where, you know, the villain spikes somebody's drink and they drink it and immediately grab their their neck and fall down dead. The most dangerous toxins are the ones that do their devastation from inside you over months without you knowing it. They're spiritual toxins, too. And they function exactly the same as lead, as these physical toxins too. They embed themselves inside of you and they work their damage. They devastate your insides without you knowing it so slowly and so subtly that you don't notice it until really weird, odd symptoms start to show up in your life and your relationships and specifically your spirituality, your relationship with God. And like that water crisis in Flint, Michigan, ultimately what the problem will trace back to is what is your source of life? Idolatry is a problem the Bible talks about a lot. If you grew up in the church or you're familiar with the Bible, it's a phrase that you have heard probably countless times. I still find it hard to define. It's a slippery word, right? You might be able to give a dictionary definition, but when you kind of go looking for it in your life, looking for the other things that you worship or love in your life, it's really hard to find it. But one way to use this metaphor to explain what, a, what, a, what idolatry is and what it does to us is, is it is a, a cost-cutting measure. It is a more efficient route of worship, of getting to what we most want in life that slowly poisons us. From the inside, we fall into idolatry when we switch the source of life from this just infinite body of water, this clean, crisp, cool, pure water of Lake Huron. And for pragmatic reasons, it's always for pragmatic reasons. Our attention shifts to something else that's a little bit more efficient, a little bit less labor intensive than a relationship with a living God who's independent of you. A little bit less time intensive, a little bit less relationally expensive, existentially expensive. And so we say, not so much I'm going to replace God with another God. 
but I'm going to add to him. Judges 2 is really a summary passage. It's like if you've ever done a big, long hike through the Rockies or somewhere, a mountain chain, and you like go up and you start out in a high spot and you look down into a valley you're about to descend into and walk into. That's where we are tonight. It's a summary passage of what's going to come in the next 13, 14 chapters of this book. It's looking down at what's ahead and what it sees is toxic spirituality. It sees idolatry. It sees an entire people group who have shifted sources of life and are now trying to get life with a capital L in all these other places and their souls are poisoned and they don't even know it. I said we'd talk about the causes of this toxic spirituality. What are the causes of of this kind of stuff? Well, I said it. We were made for the cool waters of Lake Huron. It's what your soul was made to survive on. It can't survive on this nasty, poisoned, polluted stuff coming from these other sources. What's the polluted source in the Israelites' life in this day and time? Well, his name was Baal. And Baal was a particular local deity of the land of Canaan. Remember, the Israelites are living in the land of Canaan now. Last week, we looked at how God had told his people, these Canaanites are dangerous. If you leave them in your presence, if you live amongst them, they will lead you astray. There'll be a snare to you, a thorn in your side. You're so weak, Israel, uh, that if you live among them, they will win. They will lead you astray. So purge them from the land, push them out. And the Israelites were like, that seems extreme. That's a lot of work. They're taller than we are. They have more military equipment. What if we just pretty, pretty promised pinky square that we're not going to become like them, but we still let them live with us. And what if we enslave them? And that way we have the upper hand. So they compromise. They second guess God and they do that. And you know what happens? The Canaanites get the upper hand through a very subtle, slow poisoning of idolatry and other sources of life. Baal was their guy. The reason Baal was their guy, remember I said idolatry is always motivated by pragmatism, utilitarianism. Idols get you to what you want. Idols supply a need you feel you have, a really important area of your life that's not being met. An idol will get it for you. Baal was the fertility god of Canaan. He was the god who they thought was responsible for rainfall, which is important in a desert like Israel. He was responsible for your your cattle and your sheep giving birth to more sheep and more cattle, getting you more and more money. He was responsible for your wife having a son or a daughter, more workers in the family or an heir. He was in charge of the crops, fertility, productivity, fruitfulness, commerce. Baal was the guy. All of those things are economically tied, right? And, and remember, geographically, where we're talking about this is, a, this is a desert. Everybody's life depended on rain clouds coming and falling on their fields and growing their crops. They can sell their crops and make ends meet. Again, the Israelites were never like, we're done with Yahweh, the God of Israel, and we're going to shift over to this new God in the land of Canaan. It was like, hedge your bets. We'll keep you. Can we add you a little bit, Baal? Just to cover our bases. On top of that, there's just a lot of like erotic sexual stuff tied into Baal worship. The Canaanites built all these temples to Baal and they hired all these prostitutes who became temple prostitutes. And so what would happen? Imagine the scenario. 
of you and your dad, if you're a guy, going to kind of hedge your bets and make sure your crops grew that year. And you get to the temple. And you're both doing this with two different women at the temple and then going home back to your mom and your wife. That's what the Israelites had descended to for pragmatic reasons, for economic reasons. They wanted fruitfulness. They wanted productivity. They wanted efficiency. Baal was the shortcut to get that. I know you and I don't worship him. I hope you don't. It'd be weird. We worship other things, but we have the same pattern as the Israelites did in every other human being in every other land and generation, culture and nation. It's not so much that we replace God with some other God, although some people do that. It's more, and especially with this crowd, with this audience, it's more that we add to him. This is what Tim Keller said. The greatest danger is not that we become atheists. That would be too obvious. But that we ask God to coexist with other idols in our hearts. This whole dynamic is exacerbated when you live in a a culture in a moment of time uh, of, of of rampant godlessness, of rampant abandonment of this one true and living God. It's exacerbated by these things. Notice what the passage says in verse 12. Idolatry isn't just pragmatic. It's boring and dull too. It's never invented a new God. You and I have never invented or conceived of a new deity. It's all stuff we saw our friends chasing first. It's like you see the new watch your friend got for Christmas. And you're like subtly, slowly in your mind, you're like, I kind of think I'd like that too. I'm going to buy me one of those soon. Idols are never invented. They're caught. They're contagious. They rub off on you. It's the stuff starts with your friends, starts with classmates, start with people that you look up to and are influencers in your life. Every idol that's in your heart and in your life started outside of you and one of your, one of your buddies, people around you. Verse 12, they went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people who were around them. Where have your friends' loves and affections rubbed off on you? What have you seen in their life that you said, maybe if I do that, I will get a leg up on where I want to be. I'll advance a little quicker. What they're doing, the compromises they're making, I know they might be a little wrong, but that's the fast lane. It's the express lane to where I want to be socially. So when I come into this room, I'm not going to talk to people that I judge lower than me on the social ladder because that's not the express lane. That's the shoulder on the right side of the road. Idolatry. Express lane, pragmatism, seeing it in other people. We adopt it ourselves. It gets us where we think we want to be. And again, when you're surrounded by it with everybody around you, it exacerbates this spiral, this dynamic, this cycle, this toxicity in our hearts. And you have a role in other people's idolatry too, right? I do. My chases, my pursuits affect you, especially if you know me well. You'll start to share them. Some of them will be attractive to you and you'll fall for the same things. You might have heard the, the phrase, if you grew up in the church, you've of course heard this phrase. It's like ubiquitous. It's everywhere. They say we're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world, right? You heard it? I've never really known what, that's a phrase that's kind of like, I don't know what exactly that means, but I found someone who does. This guy said, our calling is to be in the world, not of the world. And he said, it's not our being in the world that ruins us. But it's our allowing the world to be in us that ruins us. 
just as ships sink, not by being in the water, but by the water getting into them. It's not our presence amongst the world or your presence amongst godlessness or your presence among those who have who do not see Jesus as precious. It's not so much that your presence in that friend group is ruining you. But it's allowing the ways that they think about God, that they think about Jesus to come inside of you. That's when the toxicity releases embeds in you and begins to hollow you out from the inside And by the time you start noticing symptoms, that ship has sailed long ago. And it's impossible to put that genie back in the bottle. When we carelessly allow worldly ways of thinking, worldly ways of thinking about you, about life, about God to get inside of you, you begin to think about God in worldly and careless ways. He's less precious to you now. Earning money after graduation is now paramount. It's more important. Finding that person before you graduate is now more important. You're willing to compromise with God to get this more important paramount desire. That's how it leads to compromises in our lives. We think along these lines. I'll throw out a few examples from my life and yours. The ways that these things get inside of us and the way that they change our thought process. We think like this. God this God, whatever, he's, he's, he alone's not doing it for me. And so there's other stuff out there that I kind of want to pursue. And usually this is subconscious, not an actual thought process. And the way we think about it is, I'm not going to completely close the door to porn. I know it's bad and I'm going to launch a battle 90% of the time, but I got to leave the door cracked, get back to it. Because in that, in that moment when I've got to have it, I've got to have it. It's my life source. I can't imagine a week or a month without that door being cracked to let me back to the water so that I can survive. Or I've got to keep holding on to this outlet for whatever kind of sexual intimacy you're pursuing now that's, that's hollowing you out from the inside. And we think God alone can't be good enough to replace this stuff on the side. This is better. It's more life-giving and energizing than he could ever be. Or we think, I'll give God Wednesday night and Sunday, Sunday morning, but I could never imagine giving him Friday night and Saturday night because that time with my buddies downtown is so much better than I could imagine him being on those particular nights or walking with him or you've so fallen in love with options and keeping your options open that it makes committing to anything and anybody impossible. And you're the flake in your friend group. People never know if you're going to be there or not. It's always, I don't know, I'll see. Options are what's beautiful to you, sexy to you. They're, they're, they're worthy of your life pursuit. They make you feel safe. And when you lose options, you feel like life itself is coming unglued and you get scared. This is autobiographical. This is biographical. This is the cycle of spiritual toxicity in our lives. Not that any of us are going and bowing down to a new God now. We're bowing down to one of our friend's gods. We're bowing down to a very familiar deity, a very familiar idol. How do our hearts become so hungry for this kind of fake divinity, these polluted sources of water? Well, I don't know if you noticed it, but the contrast between the first chunk on this page and this, ch- and this story and the rest of it 
is a chasm. The gist of verses 6 through 9 are that Joshua, who is the deliverer of God's people, he, he delivered away into the land of Canaan, which is the promised land. It's the new, it's like Eden, paradise 2.0 between God and his people. Joshua is this great spiritual leader who delivers God's people to where God always said I would send them. But a crisis happens in verse 8. He dies and they bury him. And in verse 10, after that generation died, all of Joshua and his friends, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord. Didn't mean that they didn't know about him. Of course they knew about him. They heard stories from Joshua and mom and dad and grandma and grandpa. They heard the stories of the Exodus, of how he knocked Pharaoh back on his heels with the plagues of Egypt. They heard about the walls of Jericho falling down. They heard about the conquest of the Canaanites. They heard about the division of the Red Sea, the division of the Jordan River. They heard about God their whole lives. How did these things happen? Have you ever had a moment, maybe if you're a junior or senior, you've probably had a lot of really influential friends leave Athens, graduate, right? Giants in your life, maybe giants in RUF. While they were here, you were a really open and vulnerable person. You felt like you were on the straight and narrow. Walking with God was an, uh, was an easier thing to do. They made that life attractive to you. But as it were, they've died and they're gone. And it's just you now. And you felt like you're just dangling on the vine since then. You're withering. You don't know what to do. Just things are just falling apart this year because they're not here. Or that mentor that you had in high school. Well, you're not there anymore. She's not in your life as much anymore. The proximity you had to a mom or a dad or a brother or sister who was a giant in your life isn't there anymore. And now you feel like you're blazing your own path. And you're realizing now how much you relied on those people in the past. And now you might be realizing about this giant gap that maybe you'd confused in the past. Maybe their faith you'd accidentally thought was your faith, right? Maybe your parents' sincere-hearted devotion and love for the Lord Jesus Christ, you thought in the past, maybe accidentally, that that was my devotion, my love, my confidence. But now that you're not in their presence anymore, you realize, I don't have any confidence. I don't feel devoted at all. I feel half-hearted or no-hearted. These are the ways... That we feel this generational gap, whether it's a senior and you're a junior and he or she's gone, or whether it's your mom or your dad, Christianity doesn't, isn't inherited. You're not born into it the way you're born perhaps into a nationality or a citizenry. Christianity is something you're born into a second time. It's something you're born again into, but not the first time. It is not an inheritance that's passed down, which means it's very easy to think you've inherited Belief in God from your parents, and then you get to college and you realize, where's the inheritance? I feel like my faith's hanging by a thread. I don't believe any of this stuff. Or I really struggle to believe it for myself. There's other ways that these gaps grow. Maybe it's inattention. Maybe, maybe a past season of your life was the giant that you looked to. Maybe God's work in your life is now a distant, faint memory. 
Maybe through mental laziness. This is me through mental laziness, through a lack of being intentional about remembering the ways God has done dealt bountifully with you over the years. Just by not paying attention to that, by letting it slide into the distant horizon. Maybe that's been the departure that's affected you so much. Not a person who's left, but real sharp edged memories of his power, of his mighty works in your life. And now you feel adrift. You feel like it's been years since you've seen him do a mighty work in your life, a mighty work of mercy in your life. And it gets even um, harder than this and more complicated because for some of us, for many of us, it's not just all your fault. For some of you, it's your parents' fault, partly your parents' fault, (laughs) along with ours. What if you were subtly discipled through 18 years of living at home, the way that your parents related to each other, they talked about the gospel all the time and you never once saw it show up in the way they related to each other. They were harsh with each other. They were unmerciful. They held grudges. They manipulated. You better believe that'll rub off on you. You better believe it'll harden your heart and make it all the easier to believe. There, there's no, there, this gospel holds no water. This isn't real. This doesn't have power. Look at my mom and my dad. Or maybe Christianity was just a marginal interest in your family. Yes, you were churchgoers. But no mom or dad ever came and asked for your forgiveness because of the, the, way, the tone that they used with you. They never sat with you in the middle of the night crying and, and just hold, incarnating, in a sense, Jesus himself in that moment, walking patiently with you. Maybe the only time they talked about the Bible with you is when they were disciplining you, punishing you. Don't you know scripture says this, that you're not supposed to do that? Guys, this stuff all disciples us. It creates this generational gap where for your parents, it might have been a big deal for you. It's not or for your friends. It's not. This is the way that this happens. It's the way this stuff gets inside of us. And we begin thinking God is not enough. I've got to add to him all this other stuff. There's no way he could be enough in all these areas. These are the the myriad ways this happens in a ton of unlisted ways as well. No matter how it happened in your life. Whether you're thinking, as I'm talking, yeah, check, check, check. Or whether you're like, he still hadn't mentioned something that resonates with me. No matter how it happened with you, that toxicity got inside of you. That you got poisoned. That you started falling in love with stuff God made instead of God himself. No matter how it happened, the cycle that it propels you into is the same with all of us. Perhaps you don't even know how, have to know how it happened all the time. The cycle that it propels us into is the same. There's a seasonality to everything, you know. There's summer and fall and winter and spring, and it just happens every year. Football season, basketball season, soccer season, academic seasons, summer, internship seasons. Everything in this world has a season to it, a time. Everything has a cycle. One thing leads to another. It's a cause and effect world. And it is spiritually, too. One thing causes and leads to another. And the, this cycle of spiritual kind of toxicity or, or toxic spirituality, it's kind of like the addictive cycle. If you've ever studied that or know much about it or you live with an addict or you are one. Uh, it first begins with apathy, with drifting. You just you don't take serious things seriously anymore. Everything's kind of a joke. Nothing, nothing has weight or gravity to it anymore. You kind of laugh about everything. 
Oh, this is, this is going to bother me. One time is not going to do anything. So it begins with that triviality, that apathy. And it leads to a place of just full-on increasing addiction where the thing that we said, it won't bother me this one time or whatever, this is not a big deal, becomes a really big deal. It becomes the thing you think you can say no to, but history proves you can't, that I can't. And so that idolatry leads to slavery, which leads to misery. Have you ever been just bone-crushingly miserable? Where you're just like groaning or weeping? Or you just feel like your insides are just someone's just crushing them? That's misery. That's spiritual misery. And it's the direct result of a life source that's polluted and that's killing you. And that's killing me. And we see it in this passage. This is the misery. This is the cycle of toxic spirituality and where it leads. The Israelites did evil. Or number one, they forgot the great things, the mighty works. They forgot the gospel that God is merciful and saves you from you. Saves you from your threats. They forgot that verse 10 led to the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, their God, the God of their ancestors who had delivered them out of Egypt. And they went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them. And they angered the Lord, which led to they abandoned the Lord, which led to this made the Lord burn with anger against Israel. So he handed them over to the raiders, the warriors who stole their possessions God turned them over to their enemies all around and they no longer were able to resist them. And every time Israel went out to do battle, the Lord himself fought against Israel, causing them to be defeated just as he had warned. And the people were in great distress or great misery. This might be a new attribute of God for you that he gets angry that he reacts, that he responds to what his people are doing. What do you do with the anger of God? What do you do with God fighting against his people? This guy named Ralph Davis, who said at the outset, if you're a Christian, God's anger is a faithful anger, and you shouldn't be surprised by it. His anger is the price you pay for being loved. People who are angry are people who care. People who are righteously angry are people who care about the right things. They insist on the right things. Walking away from God is always a painful road. He will custom engineer frustrations and difficulties and obstacles and pain or numbness in your escape from him for very particular reasons. He produced the great distress the people felt in verse 15. Left to themselves, they would have been living on cloud nine. If you imagine this metaphor, imagine that you're the person in your family. Some come upon hard circumstances. You start to spiral into addiction and you start living in a crack house with your dealer friends. That's life for you now. And you're kind of becoming subhuman almost. You like live an animal existence in the squalor of this crack house. And you prefer it. You know it's killing you, but you prefer it because you keep choosing it. You want it. And your family is figuring out. They've knocked at the door. They've called you. They've written letters. They've prayed. They've tried everything. And nothing is working to pull you away from that addiction. And they know it's going to kill you. They know it's almost the end of you. 
as a last resort, one thing that they could do to not just liberate you and to pull you out of that house and you out of your preferences that are killing you and poisoning you, but also all of your friends, is light that house on fire which you would experience on the inside as at first the heat's getting turned up. This isn't as comfortable anymore. Then you start to experience it as choking and suffocating. And you're like, I'm dying. I can't do life here anymore. Something's got to change. Feeling like you're on fire yourself, you eventually run outside and you take the first gasp of what brings you back to life, which is air which is oxygen, which is the furthest distance you've ever accomplished from your addictions, which is a liberty you don't even know you're caught up in. The good news of God's anger is that God is both both arsonist and firefighter. Are there things in your life right now that are poisoning you that he is lit on fire and you're experiencing it as suffocation? as he has lit me on fire, as he's after me, or you're like, this isn't working. Something's got to change. I can't do this. Well, it's okay if you get to a point and you say, well, I think God is the arsonist who lit this thing on fire. Well, he's also the firefighter who it says the verse after that, the last thing you'd ever expect Then the Lord raised up judges or deliverers, saviors, redeemers to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. If you were paying attention, you know that doesn't fit the narrative. Israel has as of yet done nothing. You and I do nothing to warrant or precipitate or cause God to respond by raising up a deliverer for you. One to run into the house that he's lit on fire to pull you out of it back to life. He initiated. He started the fire. He puts it out. He pulls you out. This is not what we would expect. This is such a personal hope for me, and I hope it is for you too, because I was saying to the freshman last night, January is a weird month for me because I'm just force-fed my own failure in January of my lack of follow-through and my lack of discipline and my lack of getting more than a week into any resolution, any desire to change, any desire to, to, to once for all leave these patterns. And this is of great comfort to me to know that even in the places where I groan, where I'm distressed, where I'm miserable because of my own decisions and my own idolatries, God is even producing that distress. He's not waiting on an apology for me to be gracious to me, to move towards me, to deliver me. He produced the pain. He produced that existential crisis. He produced that groaning, that sense of missing him. That was him initiating, not me. I'll end with this in the gospel. 2017, there was this story that came out of New York, Long Island. A mom, it was actually Mother's Day. A mom and her daughter were leaving church. It was a Mother's Day mass. They're walking across the street right across the street from the doors of the church. And as they're walking by, they hear this, they see this car speeding at them. Turns out it was 80 miles an hour. They have no time to do anything but like look up. The mom, the witnesses said the mom, this 55-year-old woman plants her foot 
and body checks her daughter out of the way of this car, which absolutely guarantees she's run over. She survived the initial impact and died at the hospital soon after. If you ask the question, why is this 55-year-old mother in the street in the path of an oncoming car? The answer to the question is because her daughter was in the middle of the street in the path of an oncoming car. And the metaphor breaks down here because the reason that you and I are in the street is more like when my kids run into the street. The reason I'm in the middle of the road is my own foolishness, my own triviality, my own silliness, my own not taking things seriously that demand to be taken seriously, my own running after other gods, other lovers, other beautiful things. That's why I'm in the road. And that's why that freight train of justice and fairness and anger and righteousness is coming at me. Now, the question is, why does Jesus end up in the middle of the road? The true deliverer, the true savior, the true redeemer, the true ruler that judges points to. Why is he in the road? Because he's not foolish. His love isn't fickle. He's clear about who God is. He's clear about who he is. He's clear about who you are. Why is he in the road? The answer is because you were. And why does he get freight trained over, steamrolled by all of these things? Because you were about to be. Verse 16 is the gospel. And everything that comes after that, and it's clear as day right here in your Old Testament, in the book of Judges, the book of saviors, the book of deliverers. And you see in this book a litany of shattered saviors. And you're one of those shattered saviors too. And all the things that you're looking to to save you. The question I want you to leave with tonight is why in the world was Jesus in the middle of the road with his foot planted? Why in the world was he on a cross condemned and accursed by God, a place he never belonged to be because he is not cursed. He is not condemned. So why did he end up in that place? The only logical explanation and the one that he tells you in the scriptures is that that's because that's where you were. And in order to push you out of the way, he went there too. Friends, Leave with this encouragement. Put your hope in the great and mighty acts of God, which he has done chiefly through Jesus. That's what this passage is begging of you. Remember the great and mighty acts of the Lord. If it's your first time hearing about it tonight, listen to them. Consider them. And know that you need one to intercede for you, to stand in that gap for you to take upon himself getting run over by justice that you are due, punishment that you and I are due, but that he will take. Let's pray.